You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19 is where we're at today, and last week Marty challenged us in Revelation 18, and I I uh, love that message. I think it's a hard message for us to hear, but it's a good one, and I... Um, uh, today in Revelation 19, we're going to celebrate the fall of Babylon. And I, I know this is kind of a hard one because we have a tendency to kind of find ourselves on the wrong side of Babylon. And do we really want Babylon to fall? Um, but Babylon has to fall. Like Rome has to fall. Empire falls. And the reason it falls is because it's not built on the principles that God says the world is supposed to function on. It, like it ultimately falls because it's not sustainable over time. So we're going to talk a little bit about this today. What are they celebrating in this fall and how does that affect us? And the reason is because I think that if we're not careful, we can really start to target point fingers and um, celebrate the demise of the wrong things. And so I want to talk about that today and maybe how we can um, avoid finding ourselves on the wrong side of that piece. So let's read Revelation 19 and then we'll jump in. And after this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he was just, he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped, worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to underline that and ask yourself, how did the bride make herself ready? We're going to come back to that. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. So I want you to get this picture. This angel shows up and John is talking with the angel. And the angel says, I want you to write down the words of God. And John is so overwhelmed by the angel that he falls down at the angel's feet and tries to worship the angel. And the angel says, no. Stop it. You don't worship me. I am not worthy of this worship. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, which I would love to talk to you about, but that's another sermon for another day. 
And then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a white robe dipped in blood, which is kind of like gross. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Now, who is that? How do we know that he's the word of God? Here's why we know, because John wrote this, the word of God is the one who's coming on the horse. Now, the same John who wrote Revelation is the John who wrote the gospel of John, who also wrote John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and who is it? Of course, of course. He is the living Word, And this is important because what we learn is that in the ancient world, they believe that words live. They do. Your words live. Any of you who had parents that were less than a blessing to you know exactly what I'm talking about. Words live. They take a life in us and we develop beliefs about ourselves and the world based on the words that are spoken to us. The living word of God is Jesus. He is what God would say to you on how to live. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which is weird, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So you think about it, he's got on his thigh, he's got King of Kings and Lord of Lords written on his thigh, which is maybe how God feels about tattoos. But um, if you're like, cool, I'll get that tattooed on my thigh. No. It's not yours. Don't do it. Do not. It's not your tattoo to have. And you don't want that pressure. <laughs> and then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that could fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. So what we see here is that people of all statuses in society are falling and we're celebrating this. And so what we need to be careful of is that we point to it that a certain person fell or a certain kind of people fell, and that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the fall of that person. Because if we're not careful in the story, we can believe that the king of Babylon or the Caesar of Rome or the president of the United States is the problem. And they're not the problem. That's not what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the fall of a set of ideals that kept people oppressed. But our war, Ephesians says, is not against flesh and blood. By the way, the letter of the Ephesians 
was written to the same group of people that this was written to. Our war is not against flesh and blood. So when people fall, we don't celebrate it as if, look, justice, you got what was coming to you. That is not what we celebrate, ever. But we'll come back to that. And I saw the beast and the king of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with, the, and, and with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Now this is where we start getting this picture of hell being about fire and hot and sulfur and all that stuff. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, I want to talk about some things here that I think are particularly important in the culture that we're at, in the world that we're at. And what I would suggest is that today, what we may need to wrestle with is that the book of Revelation may be the most relevant book in the Bible to where we're at right now in our world. Remember... We can't understand what it means for us until we understand what it meant for them. And so I want to wrestle through this today. What, what is it that this means for them? Okay? So anytime that we see in a passage repeated phrases, we want to pay attention to that, right? Like the, the author is trying to call our attention to something. So let's start there. Um, one of the repeating phrases that we see in this chapter is this phrase, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. So it shows up multiple times. We've got to pay attention to that. Now, what we see there is that in the following of those hallelujahs is what are called imprecatory prayers. Say imprecatory. Now you guys are really smart. Imprecatory. Obviously, it's imprecatory prayers, obviously. If anyone who reads the Bible knows that, right? Let me tell you what that means let me tell you what that means. Imprecatory prayers, these are actually pulls out of the Psalms. Imprecatory prayers are prayers where God's people cry out for justice in the face of injustice. Now remember the Old Testament concept of justice isn't retributive justice, it's distributive justice. Someone is being taken advantage of. And we're, we're celebrating the fact that that person is liberated and free, that greed ended, that oppression ended, that abuse ended. That's what we're celebrating. We are not celebrating that the person who was doing those things paid for it. And in our world, it gets really, really hard because when somebody wrongs us, what we want is for that person to feel the pain they caused. Right? And so we go, oh, you've offended me? I shun you. Right? Like, you're, you're dead to me. Oh, I don't, have any, I don't have any space for you in my life anymore. Why? Because you hurt my, how dare you? How dare you hurt me. Do you know how important I am to me? I'm really a big deal. My own mind. Listen, how can Jesus 
call us to love our enemies. Here's why. Because we never celebrate the demise of our enemy. That's not, like, there's a world of applications for this in sports, but that's another conversation. We never celebrate the demise of our enemy. Because another human hurting ought to cut us to our core. What we celebrate is the liberation of the oppressed. We celebrate that God's story that he's writing with the world rings true. And that greed doesn't have the final word. It ultimately collapses on itself. Why? Because it has to. We celebrate that selfishness and oppression and all of these things that take one person and put them over another person, they go away. But let's be clear about something. We never celebrate that the person has fallen. And so this is really important because in this, we are pulling for the good in one another. That's what Jesus' followers do. We're not here to tell the world, do you know how bad you are? Like when you start your conversation with, did you know you're an abomination? Really, like if that's your good news, I'd hate to hear your bad news. No, the good news is that the things that keep us stuck in this life don't win. They don't win. Greed doesn't win, and pain doesn't win, and suffering doesn't win. And we have to live today with that end in mind. That's why this part of the scripture is so important, because it reminds us that in the end, the things that God invites us to will win. How do we know that? The empty tomb. Even death doesn't win. But it's not about people. And if we're not careful, what we do is we start to point at, it's the government's job. And so we debate this agenda versus this agenda. Or it's the, and so we have to, well, that's socialist, free market, capital. It's the wrong argument. It's the wrong argument. And we get sucked into this world of trying to debate people. Then we lose sight of the fact that you and I are actually called to do it. Well, I pay taxes, so the government should take care of the poor. No, it's not the government's job. It's your job, Jesus follower. Take care of the poor. And before you go, well, I give money to the church, so they should do it, and the church didn't take care of me, and blah, 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 blah. Listen, it's not the church's job to meet your needs. It's your job, Jesus follower, to pour your life out as a drink offering to the Lord in serving other people. If you would just worry about that and not have to get all stuck on how the church did or didn't meet your own individual need, man, the world would be different. It's just as selfish and oppressive to demand that everybody pays attention to me and my needs and my opinions and my wants as it is the emperor who controls the country. just as selfish, it's just on a micro scale. Our job is to serve the world. 
not calling out every place where they made a mistake, but refusing to let greed and oppression and selfishness take control of my own heart and fighting against it where I see it by liberating the oppressed. So when we see abuse, how should the church respond? We should fight for the abused to give them their voice back. Now that may mean that we've got to deal with the abuser. And if it does, then so be it. I am willing. It may mean that we just pour our lives into the abused. Like it may mean that. And I don't know, it's, a t- it's complex. I get it. You're like, well, what about this situation? What about that situation? What about the blah, 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 blah? You're missing everything. No, I'm not missing everything. What I'm missing is this deep entrenched thing that's in us where we want our enemies to pay for what they did wrong. And I'm just telling you, that's not Jesus. We're called to something better, something truer, something deeper. I wonder, well, how does the bride prepare herself? How does the bride prepare herself? Go back to verse seven. Remember I told you to underline that phrase, the bride made herself ready. How did the bride make herself ready for the wedding banquet? Because the bride of Christ, which is us, the church, that's absolutely an accurate understanding. How does the bride prepare herself? Well, read the rest of the book. What's been happening up to this point to make God's people ready? What's been happening? The thing that gives us power as the saints is the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. What testimony? That we endured the persecution. Listen, we believe that we're in this position where if we follow Jesus, it makes our life easy. I wonder if Paul, with his head, the apostle, with his head on a chopping block, fairly spiritual guy, if his head on a chopping block would have said, yeah, following God made my life easier. Or Peter, being crucified upside down, would have said, hey, it made my life super easy. Man, I can't even imagine. Like, following God isn't about making our lives easier. It's about giving our lives eternal purpose. You will suffer whether or not you follow with God. That's just true. You will suffer, but at least when you walk with Jesus, your suffering has a purpose. And that purpose is bigger than my own life. It's bigger than my own life. We're obligated to one another. How does the bride prepare herself? By enduring. By standing in the tough things in her life and refusing to bend. I will not compromise my convictions regardless of what comes against me. This is why we stay in marriages that are hard. So many people tell me, I just, I just don't think it's worth it. Like, I don't want to be unhappy forever. Now, look, I get, the, there's, I get it. The divorce is a big deal. It's complex. But I'm not talking about people who've been cheated on. I'm not talking about people who are being beat up every day. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who are like, you don't talk nice to me. And you haven't said nice things to me for years. You won't touch me. You don't give me what I need. Those are the, that's, 
95% of what comes into my office for counseling. Now, there are situations where we need to protect the oppressed. There are those situations. And before God, we will. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is where every single one of us who've been married more than five minutes have found ourselves, where we look at each other and go, is this worth it? And everything in us says no. And I will pour my life out for you anyway. Because that's how the bride prepares itself to be ready when the groom comes. We endure living today with the end in mind, not living today with tomorrow in mind, living today with the end in mind. Why? Because of the empty tomb. We hang in there. We hang in there when we have bosses that are difficult to work with. I don't have a difficult boss, and my staff has a wonderful boss. But for you people... I promise you, my staff has learned this. Even people who are trying really hard to do it right, do it wrong sometimes, right? But here's the deal. We don't, we don't freak out, oh, I deserve better. I deserve, I should have, I've been overlooked. I've been wrong. Or, or the, my car broke down. The Lord is testing me. No, your car broke down because your car broke down. I don't have, I don't have the money for this right. Because you didn't budget for it. Like, that's not God testing you. That's poor money management. That's what that is. That's it. Well, but if I didn't, if I budgeted for my car being broke down, then I wouldn't have been able to, you know, have cable. (laughs) Woe with me. I wonder how 2,000 years of recorded history ever existed without cable TV. Jesus followers, no less, existed for thousands of years without cable or cell phones. Okay, listen, here's what I'm saying. We have to, this is what we're celebrating. We're not celebrating the fall of people. We're not celebrating the fall of people. We weep and God weeps when tyrants fall. What we celebrate is the fall of greed and oppression and selfishness and pain administered from one person to another. We celebrate the fall of abuse. We celebrate the fall of hurt. We celebrate those things because in so doing, everybody has the freedom to become the fullest version of what God made them to be, and that's what we're after. And we gotta be careful because we can really easily start pointing the finger at people and miss what's actually going on there. So we gotta be careful with that. And that I think is what Revelation 19 teaches us. And so with that in mind, we're gonna move towards the Lord's table. And so if you're new with us, in our church, we have what's called an open table. And what that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to take communion with us. We do it every week. You have a seat at the table. So while they're passing that out, I want you to hold those elements till the end, and we'll take them all together. But I want to work through some implications while they're doing that. 
implications are, these are things that I hope you take away from the sermon. These are things that as we worked it through as a sermon team, these are things that emerged as kind of important truisms that we wanted to convey. I'm sure there's lots of other places where you could take this sermon in your own life and that is okay. But these are things that we thought would be, they're important to us. And so the implication number one, God's agenda has the final word no matter what our circumstances look like today. Keep going, keep enduring, keep walking the path because in the end, God has the final word. Anything else is destined to collapse on itself. Next implication might be this. The reason we endure is because we show we have faith in God as the one who's actually writing the story of this world. That in the midst of hurt and pain and tragedy and greed and oppression and abuse and all of these other things that we can stand firmly believing that these don't win no matter who they come from or how strongly they're imposed on us, they don't win. God's agenda wins and our faith relentlessly holds us to that truth. Next implication. My feelings, my thoughts, and my beliefs don't change the truth. Here's the deal. There are some days where I feel God. Like everywhere I go, he's present and I see him at work and it's evident. Everywhere I go, every conversation that I have, it's like there are days where I'll read my Bible in the morning and then I have 10 conversations throughout the day. Every single one of them is about what I read that morning. Like I've had those days. And then I've had days where I read the Bible and I was like this means nothing, and I've had, and I'll have 15 conversations, and none of them have anything to do with what I read. Some days, it feels like God is so close, and some days, I don't think I can see God at all, but my feelings don't change the presence of God in my life, because sometimes, sometimes, God teaches me about himself by being intimately present, and there are some days where God teaches me about himself by allowing me to try to struggle on my own. Either way, I'm called to endure regardless of what I feel. And one of the principles that we've built our church on, I mean, you need to know this. Your beliefs don't change what God is. Right? It's one of the reasons why we've been able to bring a group of people together that are from all different denominational backgrounds, all different, even just the book of Revelation, all different positions on the book of Revelation, what it is, what it isn't, how we should talk about it, how we shouldn't talk about it, all that other stuff. The reason we've been able to come together is because my beliefs don't change the truth. And you have freedom to have opinions along the way. You have freedom to negotiate and have these other places. You have freedom to do that. We, like you don't have to agree with me. You can disagree with me all you want to. That's good news. My opinion doesn't change the truth. I mean, my opinion is the truth, but whatever. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. What do you believe that isn't true, right? If you, did, if you thought it wasn't true, you wouldn't believe it. And yet we're all over the map on all kinds of issues. What we've got to understand is that wherever I'm at and wherever I'm coming from, for all of us, we've got to pull for the truth in one another. And that's a place that we can all stand together. Okay? Next implication. The role of community then 
is to pull us through times when we would otherwise quit. I mean, I got to tell you, and you guys know this, I wouldn't, you, you know it in your own life, I wouldn't be married today if it wasn't for my group of guys that refused to let me throw in the towel. I wouldn't have this job today. Like in the, all the things that I would have missed seeing God do in my life and in the lives of people around me if I gave up and quit. Like the role of community is to call us back to the things that we've always held as core and true. Refusing to let us sell ourselves short. That's what we do together. And that's one of the reasons why we meet together. It's one of the reasons why we're in small groups together. So that we have people that can help us stop thinking about throwing in the towel. Because we're all going to hit points where we want to. Communion is this invitation to us to come back to this core reality of the success of understanding how creation functions is about us laying our lives down, not fighting for our own rights. That's exactly what Jesus did. It reminds us that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. So Lord, I just want to say um, thank you for this stark reminder of how you love everybody. That your love is unconditional, that you don't just love people who love you back. But you love us. And Lord, I thank you that we can celebrate the end of oppression while at the same time hurting for the people that it cost. Lord, I ask that you would give our hearts discernment and wisdom as we wrestle through how to apply that in our own context. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.